Titanic. Its name evokes a cold chill and the tale of its demise is nothing but legendary. Captain Smith was a man of the hour and his crew was top-notch trained officers of the White Star Line. Tales of chivalry and heroism with the band still playing on as the ship sunk into the frigid dark abyss. But is it really true? Lord Menzies, a British man that was selected to deliver the verdict of the British Maritime Investigations, private papers have recently come to surface 108 years later. Let's talk about it. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You've heard the story before and most likely seen it in movies. The Port of Southampton, April 10th, 1912, sets the stage. A proud moment for White Star, Britain's best foot forward on what was to be a legacy voyage. Hundreds of dock wishers saw the ship off in grand fashion and celebration. Both press and White Star declared Titanic was invincible. Some even mocked unsinkable. But some of the facts may be a little less known. White Star was actually one of the most dominant shipping companies of the day, whose primary purpose was to deliver royal mail and freight. However, they also developed a way to double dip, if you will, and move human passengers on the top decks above the freight. The large ship Titanic was the most luxurious of its day at the White Star Line, looking to carry more first-class passengers than ever. 6,600 tons of coal power the massive engines with 17-foot propellers. The ship is the length of two-and-a-half football fields, 882 feet, weighing in at 46 tons. In today's cost, it was about $180 million investment to build. That can carry 3,547 passengers and crew, and it was the largest man-made object on Earth. For the passengers on board... The first four days were splendid, especially for the Royal First Class with all the amenities. Now, for a mere ticket price of $4,350 per person for crossing <laughs> as first class. Wow. Uh, now, that had perks, uh, granted. Uh, that was uh, access to the state-of-the-art, what they called Marconi system. It's type of telegraph system that they were uh, testing back in the day. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the Marconi, but maybe it wasn't all it was built up to be either. Well, like you said, she was labeled unsinkable. So it was supposed to be impossible to, to sink the Titanic. And so there may have been a little recklessness. They, they were full steam ahead as full they plowed ahead. through these cold, cold northern waters. And they're actually taking what was known to be a more treacherous route through the northern Atlantic. And I think probably to prove her reputation. And to make better time, I think, yeah. But uh, early in the morning of April 15th, the Titanic sank into the cold North Atlantic waters. Four days into her maiden voyage, like you said, from Southampton to New York. It took two hours and 40 minutes from the time it struck the iceberg until she went underwater. 
and resulted in the deaths of more than 1,500 people. At the time, it was the worst nautical disaster ever. It's a lot of people, a lot of souls. So apparently the Titanic had received six warnings about sea ice on the, the 14th. Uh, she was traveling about 22 knots when her lookout sighted the iceberg. And mind you, this was at night. The sea was calm. There weren't even any waves. I don't believe that. I think it was a moonless night, too. Yeah. So absolutely no they, light. They said that had there even been a, a lick of wind, they could have seen you know waves splashing against yeah, the, the iceberg. Against it. But as it was, they didn't see anything. There was no warning. So when the lookout sighted the iceberg, the ship's crew ordered both hard starboard and full astern. And basically, the idea would be that they would, I think the, the term is port around, but that the boat would swing port side, which would be left. Mm-hmm. And they would swing the boat port side, and then as the front of the boat passed the iceberg, they would swing again the rear of the ship port side, and then kind of go around it. Basically round around. But full astern seems to be the order that got them in trouble, because full astern is reverse. And on a ship like the Titanic, uh, at that time... Probably and, and didn't e- stop on today, a dime. Yeah, they don't stop on a dime. What <laughs> They say it takes miles for an aircraft carrier to stop, and, yeah. and those are big, big ships. But the full astern order uh, reversed the engines, and that reduced the effectiveness of the rudder. If it hadn't been for that command, it's still possible they could have avoided the iceberg, or at least minimized the damage. But like I said, they attempted to port around the, the iceberg. Like I said, they swing the bow around the obstacle... And then as the bow got past the iceberg, they would swing the the stern around, and that way they would avoid a collision at either end. Because of technology at the time, there's a 30-second delay between the time the order is given and the the order went into effect. So even by the time the order was given, things were already, you know, that... that 30 30 seconds seems like a small window, but when disaster is striking, 30 seconds is an eternity. So the engines, like I said, when the engine switched into reverse, it took away time. It reduced the effectiveness of the rudder. They weren't able to swing this big ship around the way they would have wanted to. Whereas if they'd have still stayed under full power, they may have been able to avoid the collision. Now, unable to turn fast enough, they did suffer the blow that buckled their starboard side. So this would have been 2340, 1140 at night. Peeled it open like a tuna can. Um, now, here's one of the first things that you have an indicator that maybe everything wasn't okay. Maybe some corners were cut. The rivets that were were holding the front plates of the ship together, even according to an engineer at her building, and I will directly quote, were near their stress limits even before the collision. Oh, my. So when this ship set sail, she was already kind of bursting at the seams almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, when it struck the iceberg, it opened 16 compartments to the sea. Titanic was designed to stay afloat with four compartments completely flooded, but no more than that. So water poured in 15 times faster than it could be pumped out. The just Belgian an, pumps were just way overworked. amount of water. And for the crew down in the boiler rooms, the concern became that the boilers were still full of high-pressure steam. If a freezing cold Arctic water hit those boilers... That could be bad. Yeah, they would explode and, and would make this a whole lot worse. So they stayed and, and you know, crew were ordered to reduce the fires and uh, to vent the boilers. So these guys are down there, and I think they said, you know, by the time they could actually leave their post, they were in waist-deep, freezing water. Let me intervene there a little bit. I'll kind of set the stage, and we're going to jump around a bit here because things start to unfold at this point. There's so many things that contribute to this, could have attributed to this. Going back before the Titanic actually launched, I had mentioned a price tag of like $4,350 for this first-class ticket price. And I think some of that was probably invested in discount steel too. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds like it. 
Um, with the departure date in late April approaching, the company, White Star Line, found that only one half of those rooms had actually been sold. Now, from a business standpoint, this is your grand, luxurious, state-of-the-art line, you know, liner going to be launched, and you've got half your rooms sold. Now, that's not a good financial uh, plan. So, White Star had made a crucial decision, and it brings back famed Captain Edward J. Smith literally out of retirement. Uh, He was one of the captains that invited the rich and the famous to dine at his table. He looked the part, the big bushy mustache. He was a distinguished gentleman with a big thick beard. If you will, the showman. I mean, literally the figment of any imagination of the perfect captain for the, the first class especially. Uh, now, this was his maiden launch, and uh, it was an event of a lifetime, and they needed a showman for this, so they pulled him out of retirement. Uh, he also brought with him, kind of as part of a package deal, he wanted to select his crew members. Yeah. And this is kind of where we had hinted uh, in the opening, you know, these guys should have been the best trained. They had made a maiden voyage previously. They had sailed that trip multiple times, and Captain Smith brought with him a lot of his same crew members that had went with him before that he had uh, that he had dealt with. Um, also, we had talked about the Marconi Wireless Telegraph. Uh, you had mentioned several alarms had been uh, received of news of, of uh, icebergs and such. Now, on the Titanic, there were two gentlemen that ran that Marconi Telegraph room. An interesting fact, they were not crewmen. They did not report directly to the captain. They also did not work directly for White Star. They were kind of independent contractors, if you will. Uh, At that time, these were young men of their generation. Uh, They used a lot of slang, and it was more to the effect uh, I would describe as a CB or ham radio kind of system, often with the gentleman teetering back and forth, camaraderie and such. So it wasn't necessarily designed as the true safety boundary type uh, atmosphere that that we might have thought, you know, in today's standards. Now, on top of that, Captain Smith, again, you know, veteran captain, he scoffed a little bit at this new system. And he said, well, I've, I've done this trip so many times, you know, I don't even need this. This is, you know, luxury to the point of, uh, you know, it's a waste of my time. Well, and I believe it wasn't even manned 24-7 because one of the maritime laws that changed after you this are correct. was that any vessel, well, I believe passenger vessel, had to have its radios manned 24-7 yep. after this. After this event. So I'll, I'll let you go on. Okay. Well, I talked about the the flooded compartments, and 16 were open to the the ocean and the water's flooding in. Now, each compartment could be sealed from the next with a watertight door. Mm -hmm. Now, again, we're going to talk about some design questions here. Each of these watertight doors, uh, they were designed to seal each section from the next. So if one were to flood, you could drop these watertight doors and it would keep it from flooding the next section. You could control where the water was going to be. Again, if you could isolate it to just a few compartments, you could keep the ship afloat. Sure. Makes sense. These doors extended above the waterline, but were not sealed at the top. They did have a small opening there. That does not sound like a good design. Now, if too many of the compartments flooded, if the ship tilted either back or forward, uh, the the analogy I found is is water would spill from one compartment to the next like, like when you fill an ice cube tray. Okay. Just rolls over the top of one section and into the next. And uh, that is exactly what happened. And she started to, to, to tilt one way in the water. 
the that water floated over those those watertight doors and just kind of filled compartment after compartment until she was entirely flooded. Now, one of the things on the watertight doors, uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about a, a, a gentleman that goes by Lord Mersey. That's kind of a British title. That Mersey's not his name, but in the month long uh, court investigation that was held, he in his notes, he kept scrupulous notes and he documented some stuff that came out of that, um, uh, the courtroom scenario. And he had, uh, some of the survivors that actually said they were sent back down and reopened the sealed doors <laughs> in order to get, uh, hoses and try to pump the water. And they mentioned that they had never been given the order to close them back. Well, that, yeah, that's now that to me kind of seems like a common sense thing. If you got water gushing in, you open the door, you want to close the door. But that was one of the things that came out in the British maritime uh, courts. So we got that going on as well. You know, what, once all those compartments filled, obviously the Titanic's time uh, floating was limited. Um, and also another thing is that the lifeboats on a ship at those, at that time, they were designed <laughs> to ferry survivors from one boat to another multiple trips. So when people say there weren't enough lifeboats for the, the people on board, that was actually law at the time. Right. Right. They, the, the lifeboats were simply to ferry survivors from one ship to the next. Yeah. It wasn't, they weren't intended to just set sail at sea again yeah. on these ships and enough so for everybody. It did have enough lifeboats to, to meet its legal obligation. And I believe maybe even one or two over yes. the actual legal limit at the time. So when she completely sank, there were still estimated over a thousand people still on board who were never able to leave the ship. Um, all those who, who were still on board that jumped or fell into the water died within minutes. You know, this freezing Arctic water. It's the middle of the night. So at 518, I believe, is when she finally disappears beneath the waves. Now, there was mass confusion, obviously, going on. Uh, now, you know, some 90 foot above the first class passengers really didn't even know what was going on at this point. Well, even even the captain, he was in his bunk. When the ship collided, and he just felt the jostle, uh, he, he just got it woke him up enough that he got he he basically got up to go see. Yeah, what he went up. He's like, "What was that?" Yeah, yeah. And he, um, there was a lot of miscommunication with the captain and the first officer that was taking place of the captain while he was in his sleeping quarters. As a matter of fact, um, it was recorded and came out in that British maritime investigation that one of the men, the officers, was sent down to deck supposedly. And goes down and comes back, and he said, there's no damage. Well, they, they tried to, <laughs> to underplay the whole situation, I think. So Captain Smith gets this information. No, sir, there's no there's no critical damage. Well, meanwhile, as we've already talked, it's peeled open like a tuna can and water's gushing in. Yeah. Uh, now, several things started occurring. Captain Smith, again, he he was a, a veteran sailor. He kind of knew some, some things and, and signals. So he called up what was called the carpenter. At the time, that was a loose term basically for someone that would do repairs on the ship. And the carpenter was sent down and he came up with more of the grim reality of what was going on. Uh, so again, we got we got miscommunication. We got different stories. Some say that officer obviously never went, went down below. <laughs> um, you know, I would think if you're reporting to the captain and there's something of that dire circumstances, you would report it. But uh, who knows? Well... Like we said when we when we talked about this episode, we're not going to talk about the Titanic. Everybody knows that story. Everybody knows that story. You watch the movie. The, the sinking is sort of the tragedy, but there were there were more that came after that. So the RMS Carpathia, she arrived about 4 o'clock in the morning. She'd steamed through the night, dodging icebergs to arrive at the, the site of the Titanic sinking. She rescued as many survivors as she could. 
I think they they pulled the last known Carpathia pulled her last survivor out of the water nine fifteen um, about nine and a half hours after Titanic was struck the iceberg. Um, by the time she pulled her last survivor from the ocean, two more ships had arrived: the Mount Temple and the Californian. Stories vary. I think they each may have pulled a person or two more from the ocean, uh, but they both remained for another two hours, uh, attempting search and rescue efforts to no avail. I mean, there were was nobody nobody to rescue at that point in time, and Carpathia was already full. She was loaded to capacity. Didn't have the stores. Didn't have the medical supplies to tend to the people on board. They were taking on way too many people, just trying to rescue as many as they could. And that Californian. Uh I'll get into later on that ship plays a huge role later on. And basically a lot of the guilt was thrown upon the California. Yeah, they, they got some shade. Um, but at that point, the Carpathian uh, started steaming back towards New York and the way they describe her, her arrival at New York in the morning of Thursday, April 18th, um, they were already calling the Carpathia, the ship of widows. And she sailed into New York Harbor. The city was covered in fog. So the scene is already sort of, somber uh you could hear the tolling of bells in the distance Mm -hmm. for to mark the dead and it was it was absolute silence as the ship pulled into the harbor so a city like new york and especially you know they were expecting the titanic to arrive as they got closer uh the silence they heard was broken by the sobs and cries of those who knew they would never see their family again and just trying to figure out if the survivors on the carpathia you know, if any of them was yeah, their family, is my, and, is my is my person coming home? Right. So, um, we had mentioned I had mentioned Lord Mersey. I kind of want to set the stage here because that's where this all starts to occur. Now you have to keep in mind, um, you know, the world, both continents are hearing the sinking of the Titanic. Um, nobody really in Britain or United States really knows the true disastrous yeah. effects. Um, but they're already demanding answers. As you said, you know, you've got loved ones, people and family and stuff on there. Um, as the gruesome story starts to make its way to both continents, the public demanded answers. I mean, it, it got ugly very quickly. Uh, since the white star lines name was branded, obviously, uh, the Brits begin to collaborate almost immediately. Uh, a high standing, well-respected politician, Lord Charles Bingham was selected as what is called the first Viscount Mersey. Now, the best I can tell, that is just an office that's appointed, a title, uh, an aristocrat, uh, for the monumental task as judge for the British Court of Investigations on this accident. And you'll hear this title, Lord Menzies, used several times. And I'm, when I'm using that, I'm reflecting to that single man in his position. Lord Mersey was bringing to the table a great deal of information and knowledge. He was a politician, uh, had a background in business, background in law. He was well-standing and was a no-nonsense guy known to get right to the heart of the matter. Now, one thing kind of interesting, the investigation in England was part of a board of trade investigation. Now, essentially, at least to some degree, that organization is the same organization that allowed Titanic to sail <laughs> under some of the issues you've already touched upon, you know, the rivets and different things like that. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of issues with the construction, the rivets, and then there was some second-rate steel that was possible. Second-rate steel. And- uh, so in a weird, twisted way, the company that allowed that to happen is now holding the cards <laughs> and doing an investigation on themselves. So now the trial lasted 36 days. And nearly 100 witnesses and thousands of questions uh, were documented. And as I had said, 
part of what brought me to this uh, t- topic for the podcast was this uh, this this paperwork from Lord Mersey. It had almost been lost, at least removed from public eye, passed down through the family. Lord Menzi was a private man. He did not speak out much. He did, however, take scrupulous notes. The third great-grandson of Lord Mersey, Charles Bingham, uh, recently brought to light those private notes 108 years after the disaster, and everyone wanted to know, did the man record added information that was not shared with the public? He kept a red leather-bound journal and his own private notes, and immediately on page 114 was something that was a, kind of a strange detail, and it involved Captain Smith. He said most of the crew for the Titanic had formerly been on the Olympic ship. Now, that's Titanic's sister ship, uh, and selected by Captain Smith, the whole crew, as I'd mentioned earlier, once he himself was appointed. Now, Captain Smith, however, uh, he had sailed the Olympic on its maiden voyage journey, again, very similar to the Titanic, just three years earlier. Now, Lord Menzi had made some notes here of things that come up that was interesting. Um, when they did arrive in the New York Harbor, the Olympic actually collided with a tugboat. <laughs> now, that that's a strike, I would assume. It did something far worse while leaving Southampton. Uh, the British naval ship, the Hawk, happened to be in the same vicinity, and somehow the Hawk collided with the Olympic as it was setting sail across the sea. This, this is only just kind of related here. There were actual rumors, uh, there a conspiracy after the fact that uh, some people claim that it wasn't the Titanic that said sell that day at all, but it was actually the Olympic. Uh, they had uh, swapped the registries. Rebuild it kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the, yeah, the Olympic had previous damage. Yes, yes, so. it did. And Captain Smith, by the way, was found guilty in both of those incidences and recorded as such. So... Um, there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, with an incident like the Titanic, you you have these survivors that go on. Um, they're they're sort of the what they called the curses of the Titanic, which people that survived felt that their lives were never the same afterwards. In particular, you have like the Countess of Roths. She documented one time that she, while dining out with friends, she suddenly felt overwhelmed with a feeling of intense cold and horror, and she could only compare it to her night you know, surviving the the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, when she took a moment, she realized that the orchestra was playing the Tales of Hoffman, which was the last music she heard when she ate dinner that that night before. Ooh. So just just that, you know, brought, you know, hearing that music brought those feelings back. Uh, at least 10 survivors would go on to commit suicide in the years afterwards. And today we would we'd probably say that those people... Would, we would have diagnosed them with what we call survivor syndrome. Right. They felt guilt over the fact that they had survived while so many others didn't. Marjorie Dutton, you know, she wrote in 1955, which she was eight years old when the Titanic sank and she was on board. She said her life was blighted afterwards. Her father was drowned, taking their worldly wealth with them. Things, banking records and things like that. There was no way to prove that he didn't have all that family's fortune with him when he went. Oh, wow. Uh, she felt cursed with bad luck and wondered if she'd ever catch a break after that and at the time uh, it's possible she was even counted among those that had drowned that night and and felt that maybe that had even somehow taken a toll on the rest of her life well flipping back into the pages of lord mersey's journal um he homes in that two specific ships as we had touched uh, about did 
send warnings that did absolutely for a fact reach the Titanic because that's part of the whole uh, hoopla, if you will. Multiple ships said they set, they sent out the messages, but for sure he uh, knows that at least two, if not more, reached the Titanic. Uh, however, he scribbles off to the side of one of the pages of his records. Conditions were ice. Now, this was messages that was sent. Uh, and underneath that, no reduction of speed. Uh, no, why, she, she never slowed down. No. And, of course, we're bringing Captain Smith back into this again. You know, Why didn't Captain Smith heed these warnings and slow down? Well, one theory is related to Captain Smith himself. Uh, maybe he was being puppeted by White Star engineer creator J. Bruce Ismay, who obviously was on the ship. I, I have an interesting little tidbit about him later on. Okay. Um, he was the chairman of the White Star Line. He was undoubtedly one of the most, if not the most, influential of any of the passengers working directly with Captain Smith. Uh, it is recorded that Captain Smith received a formal notification from another White Star ship, the Baltic, that it was in its vicinity stating icebergs and bad weather. Captain Smith is reported to have left his cabin and personally hand-delivered this written message to Bruce, Bruce Ismay while on the ship. One of the surviving witnesses that uh, witnessed this while he was up on the ship said uh, Ismay did read the message when Captain Smith handed it to him, simply folded it up and placed it inside of his front pocket. <laughs> uh, Mersey Records on page 222 of his private journal uh, dictates some of these facts, all directly from Ismay's own testimony during the investigation. He was a survivor. That may be one of the things you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, he stated he did receive the message. He stated he did fold it up and put it in his front pocket. So everything's balancing out to this right out of Ismay's mouth. Um, why? Why would Ismay stick this in his pocket? My thoughts, he did not want the ship to arrive late uh, and hoped that maybe by pushing forward, not slowing down, it would arrive ahead of time, which, hey, you know, if you're in a race and you're wanting to look really good, don't only finish the race, finish it quicker than even, a, you know, the schedule allowed. Well, again, this was the unsinkable Titanic. She had she had something to prove. Right, right. I, I will say after, after this incident, there were a lot of changes to maritime law, part of which we already talked about. Well, one of the things was ensuring that there were more lifeboats on, on ships that carried passengers. Uh, also, that lifeboat drills were properly carried out, which if you've ever been on a cruise you know that you have to do that before they can set sail and that uh like we already said radio equipment on passenger ships uh has to be manned around the clock kind of going back um before the titanic has already sunk but before everybody all the information is coming back out there was what i will call some suspicious activity and maybe some seeds of conspiracy uh, as I said, the world is already demanding to know the facts. What happened? How bad was it? This is before the survivors showed back up in New York. Uh, they waited for the Carpathia to arrive in America. Uh, however, there was little information shared. Now, they had contact through the telegraph system and stuff, but it was almost like Carpathia was being told, shut up. <laughs> Don't share any information at that point. And in a conspiracy way, that is kind of the belief. The White Star Line in Britain, of course, was uh, this was their crowning achieve was to be their crowning achievement, um, and they definitely held a strong handhold on on the maritime industry. Uh, not to mention, as I said, the Royal Mail. I mean, this was a big thing. 
I'll get into some of the details. It gets a little crazy. There was a cryptic message from White Star Chief Bruce Ismay once he was brought on as a survivor that he sent back home to the offices of London. Now, this is factual. They actually have copies of this. Um, and it was kind of coded. It said, suggest you hold Cedric Sailing signed Yamsey. And we were like, what the heck does that mean? Well, Yamsey, <laughs> spelled backwards, is Ismay. Yeah. And there was some other stuff that, that he messaged, and he was basically telling them, let's get all of the officers that survived, all of the crewmen that survived, back to Britain. Let's all get together and get our story straight, essentially. He wanted to do kind of a debriefing uh, of his own before America got a hold of the people and did their own debriefing. Uh, 20 to 25 crew members uh, have stories that they wanted to tell of the White Star, and basically you better find out what they have to say before <laughs> the Americans do. Now, Ismay finds himself on the Carpathia. He's heading back to where she sailed from in New York, and he is panicked. When they bring him on board, um, they literally have to sedate him. I guess he is so torn up, uh, possibly with guilt, possibly just from regret. Well, based on what I've got here, I'm going to say it was guilt. I agree with you 210%. (laughs) Uh, you know, there was reasons why he wanted to get himself back to London as well as the crew. And, you know, he basically said, this isn't going to look good. Well, there's no way this is going to look good, you know, with all this. <laughs> but meanwhile, in New York, a Senator Smith is selected to start the hearings on the tragedy because here comes the Carpathia. America wants to know. You've got yeah. some of our richest, brightest people that was on this ship. Uh, so we got two courts that are already starting to form, and they're almost like a tug of war with the uh, the poor survivors at, at sea, basically with these power struggles of where they're going to end up at. Now, they do end up coming to New York, which is a funny story, because the senator here in the statesides uh, got alerted by the Navy that there was this coded message from Ismay. Uh, he happened to be of a high enough stature that they shared that information. So he privately messages back and says, oh, no, no, no. Carpathia is coming to New York. It is not to return around. Carpathia had got orders from White Star Line to turn around and get your behinds back to Britain. And see, even that, that action alone, like I said, Carpathia was not properly supplied no. for the people on board. Who pe- More people may have lost their lives had Carpathia steamed to, to London or oh, England. Much longer trip. Yeah, instead of just going to New York. Yeah, yeah. Now, he telegraphs the Carpathia and instructs the ship not to turn around, that they are to port immediately in New York. Uh, there they are graded, as you had said, with 100,000 people at the pier. Uh, New York policemen are summoned to help control the crowd. They're already getting unruly. Uh, Carpathia drifts in, pulled by a tugboat, of a, you know, another small ship filled with cameramen. And there in the night sky, the camera flashes off of this ship, illuminates the Carpathia. And it's not that royal grandeur that you would expect. There are like makeshift tents and sheets yeah. and stuff hanging over bodies, literally almost hanging off the walking decks. People with like little camp set up. I mean, it, it was it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And those pictures start to make their way into the newspapers. Yeah, it was a uh, yeah that, that was a very somber sight. And like I said, the the fog oh. was was over the the city that day, so it was just can't imagine like a ghost ship sailing in. I don't think we would be doing our podcast any justice if we didn't at least talk about some of the hauntings related 
to the, the sinking of the Titanic. And then we'll go through these. Uh, quite a few center around Captain Smith. Can't imagine why he might have some guilt. <laughs> um, ships passing by the side of the wreck at night report seeing orbs on the ocean surface. Submarines that sail in the area report hearing strange signals and getting interference on their radios. Uh, that includes hearing SOS messages that have no verifiable source. Ooh. Little known fact, Titanic was one of the first ships to ever use the SOS signal in her mm-hmm. time of need. Uh, there's one story from 1977. Uh, second officer Leonard Bishop on the SS Winterhaven was giving one of the passengers a tour of the ship. Said the passenger was soft-spoken, had a British accent. Very attentive to detail, especially safety features of the ship. Leonard Bishop said this man seemed seemed odd, but he couldn't put his finger on it. Just why, you know. Later, someone showed him a picture of Captain Ed Smith. And Bishop was like, oh, I know this guy. I, I gave him a tour of my boat. <laughs> and, of course, the other person was like, that, that's impossible. This man was the captain of the Titanic. So uh, maybe, maybe the captain's still out there making sure boats are sailing safely. Common name on our podcast, Mr. Zach Baggins. Bought a mirror report that was reported to belong to the captain. The previous owner was Captain Smith's former housekeeper, Ethelwyn, and she said that she saw the Smith spirit in the mirror every year on the anniversary of the disaster. That's creepy. Now there's a, a couple took a picture at Robinson's Pub in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and in the background of their picture, uh, hazy, but but pretty pretty clearly for, for what it is, you see the image of Captain Smith standing behind them. Everything in that picture is crystal clear except for this hazy figure behind them. Uh, now, that pub is associated with the, ti- with the Titanic in that it features items recovered from the wreckage, including letters, letters and postcards that were written on board, as well as first cl- and second class China that was used on all White Star Line vessels. In 2012, a couple sold their home. Uh, where the captain was born, and he was said to haunt that house. They claimed to have seen his spirit in their bedroom. Uh, the previous owners had actually had a, a flood in their kitchen, strangely enough, when when their tenants decided to leave the taps on before going away to a week's worth of vacation. <laughs> uh, so that was, I mean, kind of a weird coincidence. Um, but they, they also reported uh, icy chills in the dining room and, and seeing full specters of the captain in the, in the dining room and the kitchen. Uh, and apparently the captain did live in this house until he began his naval career as a teenager. Now there's a Titanic artifact exhibition at the Luxor hotel and casino in Las Vegas. And it is plagued by hauntings. Apparently there's a lady in black that appears on the grand staircase. She's been seen by employees and guests and there was a photographer one day in there. He was setting up to take some pictures and he saw her on the staircase and he thought that she was maybe someone that was part of the exhibit and asked if she wanted her picture taken. And she kind of ignored him and continued about her business. So he turned, messed with his equipment some more, turned back. She's still there. And he thought, man, this would be a fantastic picture. She just looks perfect for this staircase. Like she would have mm-hmm. been there. Mm-hmm. And so he asked again, hey, can I take your picture? She looks at him ignores him and then promptly disappears. <laughs> so yeah, that's a little weird. The exhibit also includes a picture of a J Bruce Ismay. Mm. Uh, obviously one of the builders, his story, of course, as he, as he fled, he left women and children behind to make sure that he had his seat on a lifeboat. Yes. Uh, witnesses claim that he kept his back turned to the Titanic the entire time that they rode away from her. He would not look back. Uh, video footage 
captured by museum security cameras show his picture on the wall begin to shake before being thrown to the floor by unseen forces. So they may be a little upset with him still. You mentioned Ismay. Um, one of the things I kind of wanted to, to bring in here is uh, maybe a little bit of his guilt, and, and I'm going to label it as that because that's what the, the information's driving me to say. That's my opinion. Um, you know, there was a life and death situation for several souls that night. Uh, you know, White Star Chairman Bruce Ismay was no different. Uh, as he made his way across the deck, it is said that he headed to one of the last lifeboats. One of the officers stops him and says, your, your spot is here. Now, looking back and after the interviews and, and the, at the court, was that intended your spot on the lifeboat or your spot <laughs> yeah. is here on the ship that's going down? But uh, Ismay uh, took that upon himself, and he took a seat on one of the last lifeboats to be sailed. Uh, Ismay is one of the many men that displaces, as you had mentioned, women and children in the time of crisis. Uh, lifeboat number 15 uh, was actually launched with the majority of only men and many first-class passengers of the wealthy. Now, Lord Mersey, in his paperwork, he notes his concern due to a testimony of a Samuel Rule. Now, he was a steward survivor on the ship concerning the lifeboats, in particular, lifeboat number 15 that Ismay was in. 68 were saved, of that made up of 61 men and the balance of women and children. So very few women and children, mostly men. Uh, now, you got to keep in mind, this is a time in history when supposedly chivalry yeah, uh, women and children women first. And children first you know, and here you have the chairman of the White Star Line, the designer of this. Obviously, his life crumbling around him. I'm I, <laughs> wow. I just you know just just wow. Well, like I said, the the spirits of those left behind here, or the spirits of those who who died that night, they may not be too happy with him. Yeah. Now we did mention uh, the return going out trying to find the bodies. Um, I, I don't, again, I don't think the podcast would do justice if we didn't mention the Mackie Bennett. Um, and I call this the ship of souls. At almost the same time that the Carpathian is arriving with survivors to New York, a ship by the name of the Mackie Bennett, and it was nothing more than a cable repair ship. Uh, it joined. Uh, it was joined by the SS Manira, I believe is the way you pronounced it, their job is to recover over 300 bodies that were left behind in the frigid ocean, 116 of which were buried at sea. On April 26th, uh, the recovery ship sails back. Now, you might mention, why was some of them buried at sea? Why was some brought back? Uh, if you dig into the paperwork, there were a lot of the bodies that were uh, disfigured, uh, missing parts. Well, uh, even as she sank, they said you could hear pops and explosions from within. Yeah. So. So the decision was made, um, basically, if they were disfigured, you know, missing body parts, those were buried at sea. Uh, the other ones were brought back to try to identify. Um, but, you know, for the recovery ship's account states that the winds uh, over the bodies, they had, you know, cloth over the bodies. These bodies were just spread out over the ship. And here they're trying to sail back, and the sheets are just kind of bouncing. It's almost like the bodies are coming to life. I can't even imagine. I mean, this isn't your job. This is outside your normal job duty. But uh, hey, while you get while you're here, we want you to go out here and recover all these dead bodies. That they said when they pulled them up. I mean, literally, they were frozen solid. Uh, they were in various poses. It wasn't like they could lay them flat down. 
um, and having to deal and handle the frozen bodies and try to maneuver them to uh, to lay flat. Uh, that was all part of what these ships had to do, especially the Mackie Bennett. Um, as they go through, the ships come to port with the bodies. The bells are tolled. Uh, they're ringing. A fleet of horse-drawn carriages parade down to pick up the victims and like a non-stop taking them to a, a specified spot in Halifax, Nova Scotia is where this is all taking place. Uh, 121 bodies were buried in a special cemetery uh, called Fairview Lawn there in Halifax, Nova uh, Scotia. And 600 miles away in New York, uh, a packed room at the Hotel Astoria, the U.S. investigation is starting to get underway. April 19th, 1912, about two weeks uh, afterwards, Lord Mersey is striking up his court and doing all of uh, his accounts and and, uh, information. First witness called is none other than our Bruce Ismay. Uh, he's called up the chairman of the White Star Line and designer of the Titanic. This is stateside. They've already got a hold of him as much as he tried to kind of crawfish back. Um, the senator is ruthless. He tears Ismay down so many ways. In the court, uh, he is. it is labeled as a three-ring circus. Senator Smith unleashes this brutality on Bruce Ismay. He is labeled as a coward, a liar, and a murderer. And, and perhaps they're not wrong. Yeah. Uh, this goes out on the newspapers, uh, telegraph system. And, you know, here Britain is starting to get these fragments and they're like, oh my gosh, it's happening. You know, <laughs> the worst thing we could envision is happening. Um, his own testimony, Bruce Ismay's, is damning to say the least. He claims he was just a voluntary passenger. He tries to, you know, paint himself as an innocent bystander. Um, he states that no one was on the deck when he got onto the last lifeboat. No one instructed him, asked him anything. <laughs> he simply saw there was availability. Uh, no one again was up on the deck trying to get on. So sure, uh, there was nobody on the deck. Nobody of a sinking passenger nobody. liner. So why wouldn't he save himself? You know, he pleaded this to the court. Uh, Senator Smith calls Ismay a coward and reports back to the U.S. Congress, uh, basically condemning him. This, in turn, causes Britain to declare U.S. a threat uh, and a concern to its national interests. So we almost, (laughs) this is kind of like war stuff going on here. The Titanic was not just a ship, but literally the pride of Britain. So these accusations are not taken lightly, and they're still standing up for Bruce Ismay. They don't know the whole story, but this is the chairman of our best top-notch line, and you're you're labeling him a coward and a murderer. I mean, how dare you? You know, how dare you do this? If they cut corners and all that, and like I, like you said, witness testimony says he intentionally left women and children behind. Yes, he refused to look at, at the ship, and and he he never he had his back turned. To the Titanic the entire the, time it's The sank. entire time. And there's tales of some of those lifeboats that come out in the court that, like, one lifeboat was maybe at half manning. And they had a chance to go back and rescue some of the people in the water. And uh, I can't remember their names, but at the time, um, there were some very wealthy, a wealthy couple. And they actually tried to bribe the passengers <laughs> on the rowboat. You know, here's here's however many pounds. We're not turning around. Just take this. Look the other way. Now, when they are put on court, you know, they, of course, they're wealthy, you know, they're, they're well-respected. They're like, well, we never did no such <laughs> thing. You know, these people, they, they, I don't know what they're talking about. 
you know, another thing, there were so many things that led up to this Titanic disaster. Another one was uh, possibly a sextant misreading. A sextant was a tool that was used to get your exact longitude and latitude. Uh, it was believed that if you were just off a couple degrees, it could equal to 10 miles. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. easily. Um, and that was one of the things that um, brought in the Californian that we had talked about. When Titanic did send out its distress call, it give what they believed to be the exact longitude and latitude readings of the ship as it was going down, which we would not know until many, many, many decades later when the actual Titanic uh, was found at yeah. the bottom of the ocean. And that declared that, no, they were not where they thought they were. They had drifted off course. But at that time, uh, Captain Lord of the Californian was roasted at British Maritime uh, by Lord Mersey. Uh, he was described, again, as a man that fears no one. He was highly respected and honored. Um, he knew his role, and he waited his turn after the whole ordeal uh, in America. And starting on May 2nd, 1912, he unleashed his fury on the, the officers and surviving people. Uh, focus at early on in the court in Britain was on the Californian and her captain, Stanley Lord, called him in for questioning. Now, Mersey wanted to understand the proximity of the Californian and understand why it was not able to reach the Titanic. I was going to say, there were some some of the things that I read said that she should have been able to see the Titanic's flares. Yes, flares. She should have been able to hear off. the Titanic's Possibly flares. even the lights on the ship itself. Yeah, and, um, and that he, yeah. they technically would have been far closer than the Carpathian. Now, Captain Lord of the Californian found himself far away from his ship, far away from his natural surroundings. This was a this was a captain. Uh, here he was surrounded by aristocrats in a court-like setting in the middle of Britain. I mean, this this was not his cup of tea. Um, you know, it came out in the inquiry that the message had been sent to the Titanic uh, from his ship, warning them of icebergs and conditions. And basically, the Titanic, the uh, Again, not the crewmen, the telegraph guys told them to shut up. We know what we're doing. Our ship is unsinkable. Mind your own business, but essentially shut up. Uh, so uh, Captain Stanley Lord, you know, he says, we alerted them. We did everything we were supposed to. We were told to basically shut up, cease and desist. He said, I made the decision to shut our ship down in the waters, wait for daylight to try to get, you know, better surroundings. Um, Captain Lord uh, assessed that his ship was 30 miles away from where the Titanic sank, again, based upon where, where they were, where they thought they were. Uh, his crewmen were brought in and continued to be drilled, turned against their own captain. Uh, one officer, uh, Officer Gibson, stated that on board the Californian, he had, in fact, saw glares of, of lights on the ship, flares shot up, and possibly he remembers seeing some lights of the cabin uh, itself. Never reported it to anyone else before. This kind of comes out to help yeah. defend himself. Uh, this made the Californian uh, look pretty bad, uh, you know, being a part of the, the British Maritime uh, and a very serious offense. Uh, Lord Mersey's personal notes includes uh, a note from an Admiral Goth Calthor, what a name, <laughs> who uh, refutes that Captain Lord's testimony, uh, he says that he was too far away to mount a rescue, and there is a strong assumption that the Californian was not where she says she was, meaning that they also had made there, an error. There was a conspiracy thing that said something about the Californian was either 
somewhere she wasn't supposed to be or was engaged in illegal activity and uh, so was trying to cover their tracks, yeah. so to speak. Okay. Well, many today feel this blame was unjust and was possibly just kind of aftermath of the tragic accident, trying to rescue Ismay, trying to keep uh, Captain Smith's, you know, the best captain scenario uh, painted. Uh, but Lord Mersey, I believe, proved there was a great fault by many, but even in his own closing of uh, his accord was, it was a link of many accidents, um, many that could not have been prevented. Yeah. And, you know, it was, like I said, many years later when the Titanic shipwreck was actually found, and it was 13 miles away from where it had been believed to have been. And truthfully, once they did kind of some calculations, it would have been impossible for the Californian to reach them in time. In closing, you know, the, the Titanic lies in an eerie state of decomposition, rusting away at the bottom of the Atlantic, but it still captivates the public attention, and it holds many mysteries and stories still left untold. It's a story of fame, myth, greed, ambition, vanity, that all collided with fate to go down in history forever. Truly a real story of nightmares for thousands on board, and yet just another tale of nightmares on the lost highway. Thank you for listening. Hey, this is Eric, and I just wanted to give a little reach out and a plug to our first paying sponsor for Nightmares on the Lost Highway. That's our little family uh, toy and gaming shop here in Lebanon, Missouri, called Raven's Loft. If you happen to be in the central Missouri area, please check us out. We have two locations. First one is at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon. We've also branched out to a second location out at the Heartland Antique Mall, also here in Lebanon. You're going to find all kinds of vintage toys, Star Wars, Star Trek, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Mego, Universal Monsters, all types of gaming, board games, Magic the Gathering. So we would appreciate it if you'd uh, stop by. You can like our Facebook page. Uh, swing by and check us out. Thank you so much. I would like to thank uh, Alex Tudor, who has been helping us uh, a lot uh, with our endeavors on this podcast. You can call him our producer at this point, I think. Our producer, electronic recording technician. Uh, um, he's uh, the one that's setting up all the mics and the hardware in the background. And then Bill Weirs is going through taking his time to try to clean and edit this up and uh, give us the best possible version that we can present to you folks. want to thank everybody involved with that.